Well, if you'll open your copy of God's Word to Philippians 2, be reading 2, 12 through 18, um, but today we'll be focusing on the first two of those verses, 12 and 13, but wanted to, to read that section in context for us today. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, do open our eyes and our hearts this morning. We need your spirit to be at work in us. We need your spirit to strengthen me, uh, to proclaim your word with clarity and power. We need your spirit to strengthen each of us to hear what you have to say to your church today. Lord, do that. Be at work for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen. Friedrich Nietzsche was probably best known for popularizing the phrase, God is dead. And he was a German philosopher in the 1900s, and, and when he asserted that idea that God is dead, what he what was intending to, to, to communicate was that the Enlightenment and our progress had taken away the possibility that there was even a God. Now, as much as that could be a fun discussion for us this morning, that was just an intro to Nietzsche, he actually had some poignant insights in many places. And in one particular instance, in one of his works, his, his work Beyond Good and Evil, he wrote these words, the essential thing in heaven and in earth is apparently, to repeat it once more, that there should be long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. For instance, virtue, art, music, dancing, reason, spirituality, anything, whatever that is transfiguring, refined, foolish, or divine. A long obedience in the same direction. That's actually a great way to put the life of the believer. Eugene Peterson took that quote from Nietzsche and used it as a title for a book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. As, as he put it, the subtitle of it was Discipleship in an Instant Society. You see, the long obedience is what is needed, and the reality is, is that this type of, in, uh, of extended consistency in our lives is difficult. Our world, especially today, as opposed to 1980, when Peterson first wrote that work, is fast-moving. 
There's images everywhere. He wrote about how the human attention span was conditioned by the 30-second commercial. I'd almost love that attention span today. What would he write about 15-second spots and Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat and the proliferation of so much that is simply designed to stimulate visually but has very little depth? And then put your spiritual life and growth into that context. The context where the long-form essay is a thing of the past, where the acronym, and, and that's, if that's what it's called, the younger folks can tell me, the acronym TLDR, too long, didn't read, is everywhere. And that's because it was two paragraphs. What does that say about us and our ability to pursue something over the long haul. Peterson wrote this. He said, It's not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it is packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. We can sell the gospel if it's packaged freshly. I don't know the name of it, and I hope you don't figure it out necessarily, but I drove by a church yesterday where there's the name of the church, and the, the billboard for it is the picture of this good-looking husband and wife. That's what's to draw you to the church. I don't know what goes on in there, but when I see that, I wonder, where's Jesus? Where's the depth The culture in which we find ourselves, it has positives. It, it does. Many great things, but it certainly has negatives. And it, it is a culture that does not encourage a relentless pursuit of spiritual depth and growth. Now, we may look upon folks who, who have that as, as sages and, and wise and to be admired. But the tools for getting and attaining to that point they're not held up in our day-to-day -day life. They're not something that day-to-day -day we value because we look at most of it as a waste of time. We have FOMO, the fear of missing out on everything else around us. And so we don't sustain that long obedience. And Peterson went on to comment in regard to the difficulty this presents to those who seek to shepherd and care for God's people. He wrote, I'm quite sure that for a pastor in Western culture at the dawn of the 21st century, so think of even when he wrote this, the aspect of world that makes the work of leading Christians in the way of faith most difficult is what Gore Vidal has analyzed as today's passion for the immediate and the casual. Everyone is in a hurry. 
The persons whom I lead in worship, among whom I counsel, visit, pray, preach, and teach, want shortcuts. They want me to help them fill out the form that will get them instant credit in eternity. They are impatient for results. They have adopted the lifestyle of a tourist and only want the high points. But a pastor is not a tour guide. I have no interest in telling apocryphal religious stories at and around dubiously identified sacred sites. The Christian life cannot mature under such conditions and in such ways. The Christian life cannot mature under such conditions. And folks, listen, the Christian life is one that is to mature. So you've got two things at odds with one another. We are to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul puts forth in these verses that we're going to look at this morning in in part one of a two-part series called A Long Obedience. It's a long obedience of discipleship, of growth. And what we will see in this is a call to both continued obedience and hopeful obedience. Continued and hopeful obedience. And I hope and I pray that this morning this stirs our hearts to the desire for greater and greater depth and longevity in our spiritual lives, which honestly really just means in our lives. I don't want us to separate everything. It just means that that we have that desire for longevity and depth. So look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved. Now, as always, when you see a therefore, it is wise to stop and ask, what is the connection that is being made? Well, this goes back to the preceding verses where we found this infinitely glorious and full paragraph about the humility and obedience of Christ. Christ who has been now exalted and before whom every knee will bow. And Paul is essentially saying, therefore, in light of that, in light of the fact that Christ is exalted and every knee will bow, obey. But there's also further connection. Maybe specifically back to verse 8, where Christ was said to have humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I also believe that there's further connection to the whole idea of union with Christ that wasn't just an aside that Paul had with 5 through 11 of this great hymn, but it's pointing out what we have in Christ. And then taking it back a bit further, we see the start of the whole section of exhortation in 127, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So all that is what this exhortation that Paul will give builds upon. And he sets it up beautifully for the readers as he continues to say, Therefore, my beloved. This is a term of of endearment. It, it, It is sweet. These are gracious and tender words. Paul most assuredly cares deeply for them. As we see throughout the letter, we see it in, in chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 4, verse uh, 1. Uh, but but not, not only are these just words expressing his love and care for them, but I think these words also give them um, 
a strength to stand. Um, stand up a bit straighter. The, 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 these, these simple words of encouragement, in many ways, those type of words can put steel in the spine. My beloved, my beloved, hear these words. So therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. As you have always obeyed. What does Paul mean by that? Because it, it, it sounds at first a, a bit strong. As you have always obeyed. Paul's not saying that they've obeyed without fail. We know that. <laughs> we know that throughout Scripture. Paul does not believe that. Rather, he's saying that their obedience has always been evident. It's been known. Paul is giving them commendation in regards to how they have lived their lives as believers. They have sought to know Christ and to be like Him and to serve Him in their lives and in their partnership in the gospel. So then, what does he call them to? He wants them to continue to obey by consistently working out their salvation with fear and trembling. This is not something that we do casually, just at certain times. This is a continual call in our lives. This is a continual pursuit. This is, is a statement about their integrity in all of life. There was a book written, I don't know how many years ago, by a pretty well-known pastor, actually very, very well-known pastor, called Who You Are When No One's Looking, Choosing Consistency, Resisting Compromise. And from all I've heard and, and some of the snippets I read, it's actually a decent book. But sadly, the author over time showed that he did not choose consistency or resist compromise. Now, this is not to say that in our daily life of pursuit of working out our salvation with fear and trembling that we won't sin. But there is to be a trajectory of life. Again, that long obedience in the same direction. John Calvin wrote, It is the part of hypocrites to approve themselves before others, but so soon as they have withdrawn from public view to indulge themselves more freely as if every occasion of reverence and fear were removed. It's the old adage, while the cat's away, the mouse will play. When you're around other people, darn you look good. <laughs> but when you're at home in front of your computer screen or with your TV, it's not so good. Or when you're just with your family and the way you act is a bit hypocritical. When someone's there, it is much easier to obey. There's those constraints. It is harder to do so when alone or went away from one who's shepherds of God, the shepherd of God's people, as Paul talks about with them. But now what is it that Paul commands? 
work out your own salvation. What does that mean? This is where it's important to understand the message of Scripture, the, 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 the broad-stroke message of Scripture, to know context and to read this with that context in mind. By itself, this text could be me- easily misinterpreted, and it has been, way, way too many times. Too many have seen this as a command to work for or to earn our salvation. But knowing that Scripture does not contradict itself, this can't mean that. Just, I mean, if you turn back a few pages in your Bible to Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Does it sound like those people can work out their own salvation? No. Not work for their own salvation, which is what people take it as. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As you read that, who's the actor? It's not us. It's God. By grace, you have been saved. This is not telling us in Philippians to work for our salvation, to earn our salvation. Nothing can lead someone to believe that it is saying, work for that. And the text doesn't even say that. It does not say, work for your salvation, or work to attain salvation, or work toward your salvation. It says, work out your own salvation which you cannot work out something, as James Boyce stated, unless God has already worked it in. And still further, this text says nothing about God giving you salvation while the process of staying saved depends completely upon you. So, then then what is he saying? (laughs) This is a command to continue to live in and to grow in that, that way of life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, to, to make that, that eternal reality more and more true in the day today. This is the long obedience. He is telling them to make the reality of being saved evident in this day and the present outworking of it. He wants this to be shown in community. This is a plural command. It's a plural command that we have to fulfill individually for it to work. This is given to you all. Work out you all's own salvation. Okay? Everyone work it out so that it affects the entire community. He wants the reality of what is to come to be more and more real. It's 
In many ways, praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's growth. It's maturity. This is understanding more and more of what is true of a believer in Christ and living in line with that. It's seeing the fruit of the Spirit become more and more evident in our lives. And this takes and involves, for us, worship, both corporate worship and private. It involves prayer and Bible reading and meditation, evangelism, generosity and giving, working for justice and righteousness in our lives and in our community, and so much more. The, the life of God in the soul of man worked out in the day to day. This command is all-encompassing. It is for all of life. And again, this is not to earn anything. Rather, this is growing in what we as believers already possess in Christ because of our union with Christ. If somebody asked me to describe someone who is working out their salvation with fear and trembling, they would be someone growing in holiness in worship, in joy, in in perseverance, in humility, in meekness, in patience, in in hope, in contentment, in dependence upon the Lord, in love and service within the community, loving the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's dependent obedience. And Yeah, sometimes you're not going to see the progress you want to see, but yet you continue. You persevere. I don't know if you've ever climbed a mountain, but when you do and you're walking through the tree line and maybe you're on these switchbacks over and over again, you're like, everything looks exactly the same. I swear I just tripped over that same pine tree's root, you know, 200 feet down. But then you break out of the tree line and the light just shines, and you see where you've been climbing to, and it's amazing. And so sometimes as you read Scripture over and over, you're like, didn't I just read that? But then light shines upon it, and it's amazing. I'm sure that many of us have read Scripture in the morning, and 20 minutes later, we have no idea what we read. Okay. Yeah, the rest of you are lying. Um, but that's okay. Um, we'll do, we, confession is good. Um, but I want you to take heart because over time, that practice forms muscle memory. Or as one pastor said, it forms a deep and lasting reservoir of true spirituality. And sometimes showing up for church, it feels hard to do. Like, is it just going to be the same thing this week? (laughs) I know it's going to be a couple songs. We'll do a confession. We'll do a couple more songs. There'll be prayer, sermon. He'll raise his hands, and we'll all leave. You know, in many ways, it's good. You don't have to guess what's going, going to come next. 
but it forms in you over time that deep reservoir. It's formative. It's working. Continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's how Paul calls us to be tempered in our lives. And to ears that, that haven't been in church, this can sound a bit odd. And actually, probably to ears that have been in church, that can sound odd to say, do this with fear and trembling. But essentially what Paul is calling for is an attitude of humility and submission, of, of reverence and awe. He's calling for fear of the Lord. Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, for your good. Fear, service, love. They're not contradictory. They go together. I, I love what J. Mortier wrote in regard to this fear. He said, there's a fear of God of which we know all too little and which we lose at our own peril. A godly fear, growing out of recognition of weakness and of the power and temptation, and, and, and of the power of temptation, a filial dread of offending God. This is not the fear of a lost sinner before the Holy One, but the fear of a true child before the most loving of all fathers, not a fear of what He might do to us, but of the hurt we might do to Him. We love Him so much, and have that fear that, that our fear is hurting our Lord and Savior. It is grieving the Spirit of God. Naturally, we sin. Okay, in ourselves, we, we are weak and too easily tempted. And part of the fear of the Lord is recognizing that very fact. It's being humbled because we know that it is only by God's grace that we have salvation. He has been the actor. He is the actor. And it is only by God's grace that we stand now. We have to learn that our strength comes from God. And that His power is shown in our weakness, in our humble dependence upon Him. John Calvin wrote, Confidence in ourselves produces carelessness and arrogance. We know from experience that all who confide in their own strength grow insolent through presumption and at the same time, devoid of care, resign themselves to sleep. The remedy for both evils is when distrusting ourselves, we depend entirely on God alone. And assuredly, that man has made decided progress in the knowledge both of the grace of God and of his own weakness, who, aroused from carelessness, diligently seeks God's help, while those that are puffed up with confidence in their own strength must necessarily be at the same time in a state of intoxicated security. I don't want us running around like drunks thinking we're safe. But knowing 
that God is the one who, who works in our lives, that we depend on Him in all things, that we distrust our own motives and we turn to Him. So work out your own salvation. This is a lifelong endeavor. Growing in understanding who we are and who our Savior is will never be finished. And honestly, it's a bit overwhelming. <laughs> it's a bit over. That's, this is a, especially in, in a, when we've been discipled by this world with a strong bent toward instant gratification. We just want the next thing, and we want it quickly. This is overwhelming. But thankfully, Paul has given us reason, because God has, for hope. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and work for His good pleasure. The demand we have been given is significant. It's, it's huge. And God knows that, and, and He knows us, and He does not leave us to work it out on our own. We read that earlier when we read through the Canons of Dort, that, that God works and continues to work through us. And we already know that Paul rests in, 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 in trust of God, carrying out the work He began in us, in all areas. He, he will carry it to completion. Look at Philippians 1.6. And this is such good news We've been commanded to grow, and essentially Paul says, you can do it because God is the one who's working in you. The truth that Paul reassures all believers with is that the work of Christ in our life is comprehensive. He does not merely save us from guilt and condemnation. He also saves us from its power. Paul wrote of this in Romans 6, verses 5 through 7. He says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin, from not only sin's condemnation, but its power. We do not have to obey sin. We are slaves to righteousness. Yet though we are assured that God is working, just because it says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure, does not mean that we stop working. The very verse right before this says, continue to do this. We are still called to work, to, to labor diligently in the pursuit of holiness. Pursue holiness, righteousness, and peace along with those who call upon God from a pure heart. 2 Timothy 2. Folks, we are not to let go and let God. Don't just, don't drive home and just start singing, Jesus, take the wheel and let your hands off. That's not what we're called to. We are to work and to obey 
One commentator said, in rescuing us from sin's guilt and punishment, Christ does it all apart from us. He obeys in our place, suffers in our place, rises to victorious life in our place, and even gives us faith by His Spirit. On the other hand, in rescuing us from sin's controlling power, Christ still does it all, but He does it through us. His Spirit enlivens, enlists, and enables us as allies. Justification is the act of God's free grace. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. He wills and works according to His good pleasure. And that last phrase is beautiful. God does this for His good pleasure. Folks, what is it that pleases God? Maybe think about what is it that doesn't please God. William Hendrickson in his commentary quoted another good Dutch person, Herman Bavink. He said this, Bavink wrote, Grace and salvation are the objects of God's delight. Grace and salvation are the objects of God's delight. But God does not delight in sin, neither has He pleasure in punishment. He works for His good pleasure. Grace and salvation are the object of His delights. The Lord is a God of compassion, grace, mercy, steadfast love. He long, he, he, He's working to see the image of Christ formed in us more and more. The image of His beloved Son. God will will what is good, what is for our good, and for His glory. Now, that does not mean it will always feel great. But we know that for all things, they work together for the good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Folks, Christ did not save us just so that we could be saved, but so that we would grow, reflect His character and His life. We are called to grow in holiness. We're called to a long obedience in the same direction in all things. And, and as we do, that will deeply affect not only our own lives, but also the community in which we live, in which we worship, to which we've been called. It, that community will be unified and strengthened. And that's a massive concern for Paul. Just read really any of his letters and you see that concern. So this command to work out our own salvation, it's vital and it's rather big. But thankfully, we are not left alone to grow. We work with the hopeful reassurance that God is at work in us, conforming us to the image of His glorious Son. Folks, for His glory, in His pleasure, for our good and our joy. Let's pray. Father, 
thank You for Your grace. Thank You for the work that You have done in us, Your children, as believers, as those who know You. And Lord, work in us more and more conformity to the image of Your Son. Do it for the sake of Your good name and for the good of the bride of Christ that You so dearly love. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.